Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Mito Action's podcast, Energy in Action. I'm Kyra Mann, CEO of Mito Action, and I'm your host. Here on Energy in Action, we talk all things Mito, and I'm glad you're here to learn and be part of our community. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Energy in Action. I am excited to have with me today Marcy Young, who is a young adult who is impacted by CPEO and lives near Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome, Marcy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Marcy, let's start off. Can you just share with everybody a little bit about your diagnostic journey and your family's history with CPO? Because you have a pretty extensive family history of the diagnosis. So I'm, I'd love for you to share with our listeners about your journey and how you started to know that something was wrong. You started having symptoms and how that led to your diagnoses and what that journey has been like for you. I'd be happy to. My whole life, my mom seemed off and it continued to get worse as I got older. She was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy in the early 1980s. And even as like a teenager, that just didn't seem right to me. I felt like more digging needed to be done. And when I graduated college, my mom at that point had suffered a lot of physical setbacks in comparison to where she was at when I was much younger. And I felt like I needed to meet with the neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic and really focus on figuring out what this was all about. This is kind of a weird thing, but I had to do all the testing. She wasn't able to. Her insurance didn't cover all of the testing. So I had to go to my neurologist, describe what my mom was experiencing for them to try to find where the mutation genetically was. And it was over an, over a year back and forth with blood work before a lab at Baylor found the twinkle mutation. So that's interesting because we often focus so much on the patient, right? But in in your your story, you were the one who actually received the diagnosis in order to get the answers for your mom. Really interesting. Yeah. My neurologist worked with my mom's general care doctor to get like one set of blood work approved just to see that it would match. Right. Because my neurologist felt like it would be a more secure final diagnosis if we both matched on that mutation. Right. It was a targeted search, right? You kn- they knew yeah. exactly what they yeah. were looking for. And we're trying to make sure your mom matched. Right. Right. So at this point, were you having any symptoms at all or was it just your mom? You know, I think ever since I was probably a teenager, I've had ptosis in my eyes. I've been a little insecure about how I how my face looks visually because my eyes droop down. I would say that that was really my only symptom. Okay. So you went through this one year period of finally getting some answers that identified the mutation. And so the, your mom's doctor ordered the blood work for her. Did she match? Yeah. So then you knew exactly what was going on then with not only yourself, but your mom as well. So now you've got you you had this thing, right? You you've been diagnosed yeah. with CPEO. What does that look like now? Now that you know what you're you're dealing with. So at that time, I just started seeing a neurologist at the Cleveland Clinic on an annual basis. My mom really never had any appointments 
for the condition. I feel like she was too far gone with her disability to feel like she could benefit from supplements or being at a research trial or start seeing all of these specialists that take up a lot of time. And she wasn't very able-bodied at that point. And my dad had already passed away. And in Cleveland, our healthcare is comprised of predominantly the Cleveland Clinic and University Hospitals. So to see some of these high-end specialists, there's a lot of walking, very far away parking, so many logistics, so much waiting, so much standing. She never would have done that on her own. And I was new in my career and I didn't really have the time to be taking her to all of these things. And, you know, at that point I was doing all of her groceries and doing her laundry and every other task that she needed from from me. So as your mom progressed, what did that look like? Like, did your mom also suffer from ptosis? What were some of the symptoms and the things that happened as she started to progress through CPO? I would say my mom had a pretty complex case of it. Her eyes didn't move at all. They were completely stationary. So she couldn't read. She knew how to read. It was very difficult for her to read, you know, a magazine article. Nevertheless, I mean, she never sit down to read a book. Her fatigue levels were through the roof. She had a very difficult time walking. And she never really established an exercise routine that was kind to her body. So she was very sedentary, which didn't help. And again, she became a widow at the age of 41, unfortunately. So I think having the help of my dad around just wasn't there. I mean, I see myself now and on days that I'm lacking energy, my husband really steps it up. So it it makes me sad that she didn't have that from such an early age. Yeah, she was she was on her own to to kind of face what she was dealing mm-hmm. with. Despite the challenges that a lot of our our patients may struggle with, there's always so much good that our patients can add to this world. You know, you just have to find that right fit that gives you balance so you're not fatigued. Um, but where right. you can use your skill set and make an impact regardless of of a diagnosis, which is, I mean, that's, we'd love to hear those kinds of stories. You know, you're a young adult and you get this, di- not, it, I mean, it's a double whammy, right? Because now not only is your mom diagnosed and you finally have some answers, which I'm sure had to be a huge relief, but on the flip side of it, for you to share that diagnosis with your mom and to have watched her go through the challenges and to watch the disease progress for her. What was that like for you, knowing the challenges that your mom was facing and knowing what potentially could be down the road for you? Not necessarily guaranteed, but but potentially could be down the road. How did you manage that? So my neurologist always assures me that every person with CPO has a very different case and it presents very differently in every body. But it is very hard to not take to heart what a difficult time my mom had. And I was very irritable in my 20s. A lot of fear grew in me because I had a front seat to what could potentially happen to me. And it's not, you know, there's a lot of other conditions that, you know, you have increased markers for if you have a relative who has such condition. But I knew I have this. And so I'm going to get 
some of these symptoms. I might not have her whole slew of them, but I'm going to have my own slew of them and it's not going to be pretty. We had beautiful moments in our last couple years together, but we had some really tough ones because I felt like our relationship was very business-like. I had to do so much for her. When a lot of my contemporaries, their parents were helping them, you know, get started in their adult lives. And I was assisting my mom in that part of her life and had no one to do that kind of job for me. Right. Right. Because you needed the same. I mean, you may not have needed the same level of support, but you need support. Yeah. Yeah. And Kyra, we've talked about this, too, that. Everybody needs their parents, their mother, you know, at every stage and season of their lives for different reasons. And that was, I mean, it's a pretty vulnerable time when you're in your 20s. I was a newly married woman. I landed the perfect job for myself and was so happy there and just really wanted to give it my 100%. And sometimes it was tough because I had all this weighing on me. You know, I felt like I really needed to hold off on having kids because I had this big responsibility with taking care of my mom regularly. And just even if I wasn't going to see her on a regular, like I saw her at least, let's say once or twice a week. But even if it was a day that I wasn't going to see her, the pressure was still there in a way like I'm not with my son and daughter right now, but I have pressure being their mom, hoping everything's going well for them at school right now. Those types of feelings and the whole idea of, am I going to pass this to my kids? Oh, and I, I should specify too, with this diagnosis, it also was assumed that my grandmother had it because she died a very similar death to ultimately what my mom died of. Their trajectories were fairly similar with a lot of like muscular myopathy and just the inability to walk long distances. And so I kind of had two front row seats to two different shows, remembering when my grandmother. Yeah, you you have a lot of family members that have been impacted. You're impacted. Yes. You carry that burden of what does this mean for your children? But yet through it all and through our conversations, your positive outlook is absolutely amazing. And, you. you know, to have watched your mom suffer and having the fear of what could be for you. And, you know, it's it's like you're able to compartmentalize the grief and the fear and focus on living the best life that you can, regardless of what the future could hold. Right. You're in that mo you're in the right. moment. And that's really hard to do when you're waiting for the next shoe to fall. Yeah, that that is literally how I live my life. You have to decide what's really best for yourself. I try to live intentionally. I try to give everything I can to my kids and enjoy little simple moments throughout the day, like sitting down to dinner as a family or playing a board game or, you know, taking a walk together. I really try to find the beauty in these moments because I'm scared that I'm not going to have as many moving forward. Right. It's a good thing to hear from young adults who are ha we're having conversations with about getting married and having kids, right? Because it means that our patients are living longer, right? Which is really exciting. But it also comes with a lot of challenges. And, and how do you manage a marriage and the impact that having a rare disease has on a partner when that partner has to now care for you in ways that 
you know, as a young woman, you are, you aren't necessarily prepared for because you want your independence and you want to be able to care for your family as a wife and as a mother. But there are days that that's really tough. So I'd love to hear from you about, you know, how that has impacted your marriage and how you and your husband navigate through that. I'm very lucky to have such an amazing husband. We talk about the disease openly, him and I. He supports me. We've made some modifications around our house to help me live more independently. And a lot of those have been his ideas. We actually moved into a home that has a more functional kitchen, so I'm not bending down as much. Squatting gets me really out of breath, so I try not to bend down. So he, I mean, he's been my partner in this. He's not just my husband. He's my best friend, but he is my teammate in this. And he was with me as my mom had her largest setbacks. They were very close. I've been with my husband since college. So he understands. He understands very well what this diagnosis means for you. He's known my mom and my mom's first cousin, who both um, have passed away. And my aunt passed away in a very similar way, but she is not she was never diagnosed. So wow. So you really do have a deep family history, it sounds like. How do you manage that as a family then, knowing how many people in your family, like there, uh, there's some that you know for certain who had CPO. How do the okay, other members so- of your family navigate that in terms of accepting that this is happening or you know, wanting to get tested, not wanting to get tested. How does your family navigate that? So there's kind of two pillars of this conversation. And first, I want to touch on my cousins and everyone like in my generation and above. I have a cousin in Melbourne, Australia, and I've chatted with her a lot. Her mom is diagnosed with CPO, but she's questioning whether she wants to know. And she's taking it seriously and she's talking to her mom a lot about it. And I give her a lot of credit for just navigating, making that decision on her own. I have cousins here. One has pretty severe ptosis. Another that's had an eyelid lift surgery. I don't believe either of them have an interest in being diagnosed. I feel like there's a part of me that I can't share with them and it feels really unfortunate. And while I can let that stay separate with, you know, my daughter's friend from school and her mother or a relationship like that, it's very hard to do with a cousin. Especially when it's clear to you that there are some challenges that that cousin's going through that you understand. It's hard to watch someone that you love and care about kind of dismiss what what's going on because really, I would have to imagine by them dismissing it for their own selves, they're dismissing it for you as well. I feel like if I spoke to them at length, I would feel dismissed. Yeah. That's hard. That's really hard. I do have cousins locally who are as hyper aware of it as I am. And we all see the same neurologist. We see the same neuro-ophthalmologist. We have kind of gone down the same treatment plan with research trials and things like that. And it's nice to have that support system. Yeah, it matters. It matters to have a, a village 
whether it's family or not, who understand what you're going through, right? A safe place where you don't feel like you have to defend what you know to be the truth. I think what you just said is really important. I don't have a ton of family. I mean, this disease has obviously very affected my family life, or I should say the lives of my family. So I've had to go out and find my people, and most of them are blood-related. It's important. It's really important that you have your village and your circle of people. You have to when you're going through this. So I'm glad that MitoAction can help direct you to those, to your people, and we can be part of that village as well. Yeah. So as a young mom, you're in your 20s, recently married, and this is a challenge that a lot of our young adults, especially the well, obviously the women are are really struggling with is the decision whether or not to move forward with having children. What was that like making that? I mean, did you make a deliberate decision? Did it play into your decision to have kids, your diagnoses? How did that impact you becoming a mother? We started thinking about talking about having kids when I was probably about 26, 27. And we met with a specialist who talked to us about opportunities to take my embryos to a lab somewhere else and ensure that my child would not have CPO. It's going to cost me upwards of, you know, $30,000. And that's if it takes the first time. It was so hard to know what my chances of that were. We didn't have that kind of money. And I didn't want to put us in such debt when I really trusted the fact that by the time my kids are born and are at that adult part of their lives, that medical science will be there to help them more than my hope was that medical science would be more available to them than they, than it was for my grandmother and my mom and possibly even me. So we talked a lot about it. And should we move forward? Should we see? It was such a gamble. And we we could have lost everything. And we chose not to go in that direction and to have children naturally. And fortunately, I was able to carry a child two times. I was a high-risk pregnancy case. And my OB made sure that he was the one to deliver my babies because Again, it's such a rare disease. There's no template for how to handle certain things. You know, a lot of people with CPO have cardiac issues. Fortunately, I have not presented any, but who's to say that a pregnancy wouldn't bring something like that on? So I felt very well cared for when I was pregnant. And my kids are are so young. They have not been tested. The medical facility that we use... They do not support testing children for this specific. My kids are 10 and 7. You had a pretty, an uneventful pregnancy. Everything went well. Thank God. Yeah, and you have two incredibly healthy, happy children. Tell me, as a mom, how you process on a day-to-day basis. Again, as you, you, know, you received this diagnosis, having watched what your mom went through, what does that feel like as a mom having those now concerns about your children and what could happen? Right. That's a really good question. So I'm a very open book with my kids. 
I try to be honest with them so that there's no uncertainty. Uncertainty can drive fear. I don't want that for my kids. They know that their great-grandparents were Holocaust survivors. We've gone into detail about that. But the reason Grandma Ruthie isn't around anymore is because her body stopped working. They don't know anything else. They don't know that I have the genetic condition. They've never noticed that my eyes droop. And I actually credit some folks through MitoAction that have encouraged me to think through that closed book portion of my life. I don't know how I feel moving forward, but I know how I feel today. And I grew up with so much fear and so much worry. I watched my dad die of a lung infection when he was 43 years old. And then my grandma dies at 69. My mom dies at 60. Her cousin dies at 63. I I mean, the list goes on. I'm so scared of dying. I'm so scared of creating the environment for myself to go down this slope where my symptoms present more significantly. I, I just have so much fear. I've been on anxiety meds for years. And to me, when when the Cleveland Clinic encouraged me not to test my kids and I decided I was going to keep that book closed as as long as I can. It's been a personal decision and I'll take it year by year, you know? Yeah, I think that's important because having gone through everything that you went through, right? You know what you don't want to bring to your children's lives. You know the stress and strain and worry and fear you don't want to bring to their lives. And so it's almost like you have to take it day by day and really, you know, be aware of what, what they notice, what they're aware of and being open to being able to answer those questions as they have them in a way that is appropriate for their age, right? Because, you know, kids are kids are very astute. They, I think, realize a lot more sometimes than we give them credit for. But you also have to protect them. And I agree with that. <laughs> not give them more than they can handle at any given time. Um, and, and as a mom. I don't want them to have to handle this. Yeah, absolutely. Whether they could. I don't want them to have to. Yeah. Not now. It very well could be that they may not have to handle. Right. That's also the possibility is that they may not develop symptoms and may not develop CPEO. You have to weigh the burden that that you could potentially put on them by sharing something that could be that may not ever be for them, right? It'll be enough for them to have to deal with watching mom go through this. And as they get older and, you know, probably will ask questions. It's a lot. Um, and, And you as mom know best. And so you have to, that's a very personal decision and how you share that information with your children, because your only goal, and I know you well enough to know, is just to protect your children. It is. I'd like for you to share with us a little bit about making that decision that it was time for you to leave work and to be a stay-at-home mom and to focus all of your effort and energy on yourself and being as healthy as you can possibly be. And being with your children. And I know you, you know, you talked about finding the dream job and you were doing something that you absolutely loved and were amazing at. At what point did you, did you finally come to the decision that, okay, it's time? My back started giving me a lot of trouble when my daughter was one. So that was about seven years ago. And I pushed through for about 18 months with a job that I was on my feet a lot 
It was an extraordinary amount of hours. It was hosting entertainment at entertainment venues. It, it all just felt too much physically. And it was taking a toll on me mentally. I was always having to leave to go to physical therapy every time my back flared up and I couldn't make the appointments because I had to be in meetings and it was entirely too stressful. It was too much on one person. Right after I lost my mom and had my first child without her, my son was born when my mom was still alive and and she passed away when he was 16 months old and my daughter was born a year and a half after my mom passed away. It was a really tough decision because I walked around saying, I'm going to retire from here. I'm going to be here till, you know, when I'm a grandma, I'm going to be here forever. I, I loved my boss. I loved my clients. I did well. I, I was really, I like being creative. It gave me the opportunity to be creative and I, I miss it to this day. Yeah, it's a hard, it's a very hard decision. Walking away from a job that you loved tremendously, but knowing it was the right decision. It was like a, a grief. It was it was like a loss. Absolutely. You go through the stages of grief. Exactly. So yeah. now that you've you've stepped away, tell me how you find that purpose every day and and meaning in what you do and being home with your kids, right? Because you're now the CEO of your household, right? You've got a new job. <laughs> and I take it very seriously. <laughs> I try to be really intentional about planning creative and fun things with my kids and their friends. And I want to be that mom. I try to support other moms that are working, you know, having playdates at my house. I've been writing a book about raising my kids without my parents' influence and insight. And I hope to get more involved in Mito Action. I've been involved in my synagogue and I still have a lot of doctor's appointments. (laughs) Yeah. It takes up a lot of time. (laughs) It's important for you to continue to find meaningful ways to stimulate yourself, to be engaged with other people and to do things that are meaningful. And you seem to have found that balance to be able to stay engaged and involved. And, you know, and I'm sure for your children, there is nothing better than having you home. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what your experience has been with clinical trials. And if you've participated, why you made the decision to do so. In my head, it's not a question of whether I will or won't participate. The first trial was a shot every day. I gave myself a shot every day for close to 14 months until the trial ended. And it was painful. It was very painful. I had on-site reactions almost daily. It burned. I slept with ice packs. And this trial that I'm currently on is three pills a day. So it's not as intrusive in that way. But it takes up a lot of time, visits at the clinic, phone interviews about how I'm feeling and any changes to my health. But it's not a question of whether I will or won't do it, because what's the point in me saying that I I care so much about, you know, the future and everything and then trying to ensure a better trajectory for my kids if I'm not going to commit myself at this time when there are programs available. So what would be your advice? I know that we have a a lot of, you know, quite a few clinical trials that are going on for the mitochondrial disease space right now. And for some patients, you know, the thought of upsetting the status quo is tough. Like you said, the time commitment and visits to the hospital and the interviews, what would you say to 
a patient, a fellow mito patient who is on the fence about participating in a clinical trial, the fears that they may have, the concerns that they may have that will help them feel more confident in moving forward with participating? I would want people to think about it from the opposite direction. If the generation above us were to have had the opportunities to be in these trials, and if they didn't take advantage of it and were suffering because of a lack of interest from them, let's try to not create that situation for the generation below us. And the trials that we're doing right now, depending on your age and and your severity levels, could still very well help ourselves. Yeah. And one of the things that we talked about is kind of changing the perspective and perception of what a clinical trial is all about. Because I think for so many years, when you think about a clinical trial, right, you think about somebody who has a, a terminal illness or who might be at the end of life and a clinical trial becomes the last resort. And I think for so many people, that's how they see clinical trials as a last resort, where in reality, what clinical trials provide is an opportunity to access to new and improved medications, right? New treatment options that you may not have access to that will be able to help you. And so I think we have to help change that perspective of it being a scary last resort as opposed to an opportunity. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as a last resort. I see it as the horizon. I see it as, you know, being part of this frontier of having medicine to help the daily symptoms. You know, there was just recently an approval for Frederick's ataxia treatment, which is huge, right? And so oftentimes in a disease state, once you get that first approval across the finish line, then you start to see more more therapies come and, and be approved. And we hope that's what's going to happen in the mitochondrial disease space. And I think there are a lot of really promising trials that are currently taking place. You know, the industry partners that we have that are so committed to our community and who just work tirelessly day in and day out to support this community, but they need us to support them in their work by participating in the trials. And that's really important. And so I appreciate you sharing your perspective because it, you know, without, without participation in the trials, the therapies don't get approved and it's really, really important. And so you answer the question, why do you do it? You do it for your children. So tell me on a day-to-day basis, what is life like for you now? Some days when I feel okay, We'll call it okay. I don't usually feel better than okay. But on days that I feel okay, I want to cook my family dinner. To me, that's very important. It's something that when I worked, I really put on the back burner because I couldn't do everything. But now I really want to prioritize that on the days that I feel good. But me making dinner for my family means I might gather my spices and measure them out in the morning. I might you know, cut the meat in the afternoon so that when I'm cooking in the evening, I'm not on my feet as much. I have to be very conscientious of that. I can't usually stand on my feet for more than 10, 12 minutes before my back starts to really hurt. And that's when I'm not even in a flare up. Yeah. That's just on a regular day to day. Yes. That is my pure limitation. And if I go longer which from time to time I have to take my kids to things and there's no place to sit, I that's when a flare-up happens. But sometimes there's nothing I can do. And I'm dedicated to being there for my kids. Yeah. 
on the days that I don't feel as okay, then I might do the first one or two of those first steps and then have my husband take over when he gets home. It's been very nice since my daughter can now wash her own hair. That was a physical limitation for me that I pushed through, but that's a big help to me to not feel needed there. I rest quite a bit. I can't go run a couple errands in a row. I might run one errand. I take my kids to a lot of places, so that's a big part of my day-to-day, getting them to their activities. But I've learned to live life more in the mundane. Yeah. Pacing is really critical for you, mm-hmm. it sounds like, is planning mm-hmm. and pacing so that you you don't overdo it and you give right. yourself time to kind of split up your activities into sections mm-hmm. and do a little bit at a time. Mm-hmm. And that's hard. Even, even that, I think, you know, when you're accustomed to being so independent and career oriented to have to kind of step back and slow down a bit. And so exactly. I, I can imagine that's that's been tough for you because you are all about let's get it done, right? Mm-hmm. And getting it done. But I can't push myself in that way. Yeah. I think what's important, and we talk about this in, in support calls all the time and when we're interacting with patients, is that you have to learn to be kind to yourself and give yourself some grace, right? Because it's not really a failure, right? Your capacity has changed and that's okay, right? That's part of this process. And you've got to give that grace to yourself to not beat yourself up when it takes you a little longer to do something than it used to, because you're still doing it. You're still at it. You're still committed to your kids. And you've got to give yourself that grace to not overdo it and cause more damage than you possibly could. It's so easy to tell a friend to give themselves grace. It is so hard to do it yourself. It is. So how do you work through that? How do you, on a day-to-day basis, kind of find a sense of peace? We, we, we go, go around, around the dinner table and we say one challenging thing and two highlights of the day. day. Highs and lows, we do that. I love that. Obviously, it's a very different experience for my kids to do it. But I think it's also very healthy for my husband and I to do it for different reasons. You know, he's in a job that may sometimes feel monotonous or or stressful, and he has to stop and answer the same question that we all do. And I have to find highlights in a day that sometimes I'm not feeling great. So on a daily basis, I push myself to really think about what those highlights are. And they, sometimes it'll be small. I mean, today, this is for sure a highlight. absolutely creating more awareness yeah I love that Um, but every day is a little different I try to see my friends more I've really thought about the aspect that now that I'm not working that I can really commit myself to you know spending time with friends so I try to talk to friends see friends on a regular basis and keep those relationships strong yeah And I want to be there for... It's important for you to have that outside of your children. It's really important. Mm -hmm. So you started, you know, really developing symptoms in your 20s, right? As you were becoming a young adult. How was it interacting with your friends who, you know, maybe friends that you had when you were in high school? And, you know, I don't want to use the word normal because that's not correct. But when you weren't having symptoms, they knew 
you know, you when you didn't have symptoms, this Marcy, you didn't have symptoms and you could do all of these things. And now you fast forward a few years and things change and there's certain things you can't do. How was it interacting with your friends and kind of were they supportive? Did you feel like you were constantly having to explain? Because a lot of what you feel sometimes is not visible to the naked eye, right? right? The fatigue. How do you explain that fatigue to people who don't, you know, it's a hard concept to understand because when you say you're tired and when someone who does not have a mitochondrial disease says they're tired, it's two totally different things. There's a lot to unpack here. I have friends that also saw my mom start to develop more significant symptoms. I think that it, it's a lot of explaining. It's a lot of explaining to friends who I've known for decades, and it's a lot of explaining to more recent friendships that have grown. I do sometimes feel like I need to justify my mundane lifestyle or why I can't do X, Y, or Z, even though I know I'm speaking to someone that's very understanding, I still feel the need to say it. I am truly lucky to have some phenomenal friends who are very supportive and want to hear about my specialist appointments and keep track of things that I'm going through, check in on me when I'm having a back flare up or they know my day to day and they're willing to walk this walk with me. You probably also had some friends who weren't willing and didn't understand. Yeah, I've definitely had to walk away from friendships, especially losing your mom, regardless how they pass away, you see how people are during a situation like that. And I have a rare disease, so I've just lost my mom. I am getting these more significant symptoms of this rare disease. If you weren't there for me then, you probably aren't going to be very supportive of me during the day-to-day with my condition. You need your people in your corner who get you. And I I need someone to be emotionally mature with me. Right. And it's understanding, you know, having friends and people in your life who know how to meet you where you are. Because for you, every day that could be different. But but that has to be okay. Right? Mm -hmm. But again, that makes me hopefully a better friend because I understand how important that support is to me, and I want to be able to provide that support to to friends. Absolutely. Say we have a newly diagnosed patient into the mitochondrial disease world. What is it that you wish you knew as you entered this, this journey that you want to share with other patients or families who are just starting out on this journey? I would say not to ignore advice from doctors. I remember when I was a kid, my mom was given information about taking supplements. I have no clue if it was the same supplements that I've been recommended to take, but I remember walking into a GNC store with her and we didn't have much money. And I don't know if that was the only place she could purchase these or if that's the only place she knew of these, but she didn't take the advice of the doctor because she couldn't keep up with those costs every month. A lot of our families struggle with that. The supplements for the mitococktail are really, they can be really expensive. And that's part of our advocacy work is trying to ensure that supplements for the mitococktail are covered by insurance because it is it is medically necessary. And for the patients that it helps, it makes a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Looking back on it, 
I wish my mom would have prioritized that more and not ignored that advice or maybe looked in to see if her insurance could cover it or try to figure something out. Or maybe we went out to eat once or twice less a month. I remember this trip distinctly to the store and I must have been a very young girl and she didn't even have the CPO diagnosis. So again, I don't know what supplements she was even recommended, but I remember we walked in and shortly after we walked out and I've taken what my neurologist has taught me about, you know, adequate amount of sleep and my mom ignored that advice as well. Um, she was always tired, but it was just hard to get her to, you know, go to bed at night. She liked her late night TV, but you, you got to commit yourself to a team of doctors and you have to commit yourself to small life modifications that can hopefully make a big difference as years go on. I think awareness and being an advocate for yourself is so important. I'm very lucky I live in a city that has all the right doctors and they're all connected. But I know that there's a lot of people out there that the diagnosis journey is going to be longer and more challenging. The doctors aren't going to be in touch the way mine might be. But you need to advocate for yourself. Your positive outlook especially having gone through losing so many family members to CPEO. It just is truly remarkable. And and I think you you will be an incredible inspiration to a lot of people in this community who are just really struggling to come to grips with the diagnosis and what it could possibly mean and the challenges of having a rare disease because somehow you always find the light in it all. And that's truly, truly remarkable. And it's a challenge to stay in that positive space. And I'm sure there are days that you have where you aren't quite so positive, but somehow you always find your way back there because that, that's really what helps to get you through. Not just you, but your husband and your children and the people in your life who you're helping, you also are supporting in their own journeys and helping them to support you and helping them understand what you need from them which is really important. I definitely think that's a big part of it too, is I've laid out what I need from people and the people that are in my life have delivered. That's amazing. And it's about communication, right? You really, really having to help the people in your lives understand what you need. We, we talk about this a lot when we, we talk about grief, right? And you know, you lose someone and everyone says, well, let me know if there's anything I can do, let me know. <laughs> and one of the things that I always try to explain to people having lost both, both of my parents is like, it means a lot that people reach out and say, let me know what I can do to help. But the reality of it is, is when you're in the midst of a crisis or you're going through a challenge, the last thing you want to do is pick up the phone and call and ask someone for help. And so really what you need is for people to just show up, right? If you feel like you want to help with food, just show up with the meal. If you are, you know, just whatever it is. And so that that's one of the things that I always try to tell people. And, and I try to practice too, is that if, if someone close to me is struggling, I try to just show up because I feel like that's what you need in that moment. And it's really hard to reach out and say, can you do this for me? You and already feel so vulnerable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm just really happy for you and grateful for you that you you have people in your life who show up when you need them to show up. And I think that's that's really important for people to understand is to just sometimes yeah. they just need you to show up. 
Well, Marcy, I am so thankful for your time and for you being so open and honest about your journey and your family's journey with CPEO. And I look forward to having more conversations with you about being a young adult on this journey with mitochondrial disease and the challenges that you faced and how you continue to thrive despite this diagnosis and have an incredible life with your husband and children. Thank you. Thank you so much, Marcy. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Energy in Action. Remember to give us a five-star rating on your listening app. This helps to boost us up the charts and makes it easier for others to find us. You can find all of the links and details that we share today in the show notes or at mitoaction.org. Have a great day, and we look forward to having you join us next time.